Once again, the smartest man in the world, Proopcast, takes to the ether, this time from the salubrious confines of the Fortress of Proopitude, located here in Lowen, California. <laughs> this is the People's Choice from Philadelphia and their magnificent uh, classic Party is a groovy thing. You may remember uh, Do It Any Way You Wanna, the fabulous disco hit they had for Gamble and Huff. I'm Greg Prutz. What's your name, lady? Hi, I'm Jennifer. Hi, nice to meet you. <laughs> um, we're having a groovy thing right here. Um, we're also celebrating um, the... Uh-oh. Uh wow. Well. Yeah. For several reasons. Um, it's uh, the 750th episode of the podcast. I just made that up. Uh, I love fake anniversaries and stuff, and I love when people celebrate how long they've been in show business. That's one of my favorite things people do when they go, I'm celebrating my 45th. It's like, I don't want to know. Well, like when um, Mart said to me last night that Robert Wagner is celebrating his seventh decade in show business. Yes. And has just rebooked uh, NCSI. Really? He's got to be 90 plus years old. He just turned 90. Robert Wagner. You may remember Robert Wagner from such greats as um, uh, uh, what was that? Yeah, what was his TV show? It Takes a Thief. Mm -hmm. uh, that was when uh, that was like late sixties, early seventies. Um, he's in dozens of movies, including The Pink Panther, and um, notably uh, was married to Natalie Wood upon the moment of her demise. Mm -hmm. You said Mart, but you didn't explain who Mart was, oh, Mark as if Crowley. you expect everyone listening <laughs> to the show that yes, you were talking to Mark, Mark Crowley. Crowley, the playwright. Uh, and I always uh, appreciate his his stories. I asked him if he had ever known Ashley Boone Jr. There was an article about uh, him in The Hollywood Reporter because it's Black History Month. And uh, apparently someone just remembered that there was briefly a black man who was also gay, who's head of a studio for a few months. 20th Century Fox. In the, in the 70s. And uh, there was a really fascinating article about him. Um, he passed away. What was away that in? Hollywood Reporter. Oh, it was in the It, it was yeah. an article by Scott Feinberg. And uh, Ashley Boone Jr. died in 94. Uh, he was quite young. He was 55. Um, he was in Sidney Poitier's production company. Then he moved to Fox in 72 as a, in charge of um, marketing. And, or he wasn't in charge. He was working in marketing and distribution at that Let, time. Let's uh, cut to the excitement. Rocky what? Horror and Star Wars. Oh, yeah. He uh, made sure that Rocky Horror was introduced as a midnight screening cult film. And... That I didn't realize that was part of the marketing strategy from the beginning in mm -hmm. the states. Um, he took on uh, Sounder. Yes, which that beautiful he, movie with um, Paul um, uh, Winfield. Paul, Paul Winfield and Cicely Tyson, yeah. who's also alive at yes. ninety-three. Yeah, was just on the View yesterday. Was she really? So, yeah. Speaking of Black History, wow. Cicely Tyson did a movie when we were uh, kids called um, "The Life and Times of." Miss Jane Pittman. Of Miss Jane Pittman. And it was written by Keenan Wynn's son, was it? Who um, he who was a decent writer, and, and she was a, a living slave, was she not, in the picture? And she recounted her entire story from being in 
bondage as a kid and everything. It's it's a superb piece of acting because she played yeah, herself she's in every, every part of her life yeah. except for a child. Yeah, she's it's it's really outstanding. Um, she, also she was played, also in Sounder, which Mr. Boone championed. Yes, uh, she also played Harriet Tubman in uh, a TV movie in, oh, in yes. the seventies. Um, yeah, so Ashley Boone Jr. When he was uh, trying to distribute Sounder, he uh, first had it screened for uh, school kids, really around the nation. Well, it's such a moving. Uh, and I think that's when I saw it right. in, in uh, DC. Um, George Lucas said, I had a bad time with the studios. The only one uh, that I didn't have a bad time with was Fox because of Ashley Boone and Alan Ladd Jr. Right, Laddie. Um, no one was interested in Star Wars. And apparently Boone went up to see it. And there were he said there were comfy couches in the room. And he thought everyone was just going to fall asleep. Really? And he was completely wound up and excited about Star Wars uh, well, after the screening. Good call on that one. <laughs> if you're the head of production and you're greenlining, he also um, uh, got Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry a bajillion theaters, uh, and it made them a fortune that year. Apparently, uh, George Lucas was so nervous uh, when Star Wars came out, he fled to Hawaii. Really? And Boone would phone him with the numbers, the box office numbers. Oh, my God. But it was such a smash from day job. <laughs> but they really didn't think it was going to be. Um, well, it's an interesting sci-fi movie because it's slow as molasses for the first half hour. I mean, nothing. You know, then finally his aunt and uncle are brutally... Uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the first <laughs> Star Wars movie. Well, a terrible moment happens to him that all heroes in there, you know, doesn't Lucas observe the faux Joseph Campbell school of... The hero's journey, and one of the first things is something awful happens to you, you know your people, and then you have to go out into the world, and that's one of your reasons why you have a code and shit, right? Because the bad guys did something so bad that I'm poorly explaining Joseph Campbell. If he was alive, still, he might <laughs> come roaring at me with seven heads and, and display all kinds of heroism. So, uh, just to stop my talking. Back to Ashley Boone. When Ellen Ladd left Fox. Uh, Boone was made president of distribution and marketing, and it was uh, the first time a black person held an executive role uh, at that level Gene in Rogers. Hollywood. Oh, and he had a lot of firsts. And his sister, who is uh, quite a bit younger than him, became the first head of the Academy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And when they were uh, at both members of the Academy, uh, they were the the first uh, time for documentary on them, don't you? Think? Right, <laughs> because I mean, look at their contribution to film. You'd think that someone yeah. would want to do a. a he was really inventive, and he really cared. Close Encounters, a lot. I see here. He, he exact on that too. Alan Ladd said he was the the most decent man I've ever met, and he was a student. And he who says that nobody, nobody, about nobody. Hollywood executives? They, well, they're generally and he was not gay, decent. and he really was not uh, open about it, even apparently with his family. Really. So uh, someone asked him if it was how he felt being the only black person in the room a lot of the times at these meetings. And he said, well, I stand out. Uh, he certainly had a personality. Everybody said he was lovely. But I can believe it because um, I don't know George Lucas, but I worked with him one day. And, um, we, you know, we've been around the Bay Area long enough to have people tell us about him. He seems like a very nice, decent guy. Mm -hmm. He was never a screamy 
throwing the thing across the room, demanding, stamping type of director. No. And this cat wasn't either, and that's unusual. But there are nice people who are really smart in show business, otherwise nothing good would ever get made. Well, and I just love the description of him. I guess they they took a bunch of them in a bus out to the screening room uh, where there was no... uh, Lucas Ranch then, mm-hmm. so Skywalker Ranch. Right. So I don't know where I can't remember where that was, but I like the idea that it was it was so Northern California Bay Area that it was like a living room setup. Really? Well, yeah, you know, of course, like the Red Victorian and, Theater. Yeah, on Street, it was remember? very it was very hippie. Yeah, it was popcorn and a red couch. Except I'm sure it was a little nicer. This says here in '90 he went reunited with Lad and they let him. Um, do marketing at Pathé, which merged with MGM, and he launched Thelma and Louise. So mm-hmm. it seems like every picture he touched had something special about it. Dirty Mary is not a special picture, but it is featured in another picture. Uh, in one of our favorite pictures, Jackie Brown, He's isn't she watching Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry? I don't... I think you'll find there is. All right. All right. Okay. Never. Um, first of all, if you had only said Rocky Horror... Right. That's legendary. The fact that you thought of sort uh, of having it be the midnight show, which I don't know about you in high school, but I went to see it a million times in high school because if you had nowhere to go, you didn't have your own apartment or anything, how were you to go out and entertain yourself? And the Rocky Horror Show, wherever movie theaters they had it in in general, except for a couple on the peninsula, were dens of iniquity in San Francisco. And uh, we would drive up to the city and go see it uh, there was a place on market called there the... There were a few sketchy the, places. The Egypt or the Egyptian? The Egyptian. The Strand. The Strand always showed it, but the first time I saw it, I went up with my buddies Jeff and um, Mike, and we went to the Egyptian. And I remember uh, the crowd outside was really high and freaky. No. And Yes, and there was uh, an old homeless guy hectoring us in line and stuff. And um, uh, this uh, young, inebriated gay man in front of me was wearing a t-shirt that had two pigs um, porculating on the front of it, and it said, Macon Bacon. Do you remember that oh t-shirt? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's <laughs> unforgettable 1976, right? Or 77. So we make our way in, and um, uh, um, a gay black man with no shirt on wearing what appeared to be a DNA molecule on his head was dancing to Lady Marmalade. Perfect. And they were playing LaBelle before the movie and whatnot. And we all smoked dope, which I couldn't believe because I was from the white San Carlos. That inside a movie theater, you could get up to all this. Like there was drinking, there was smoking dope. Then I was really, really high by this point, too high. And the movie started. And I remember thinking that the movie was five hours long. But when everybody uh, started stamping with Tim Curry when he comes down the elevator, <laughs> that was the part where I lost my shit. And I was like, this is astonishing, right? The water, everything. So... I always thought it was this uh, unbelievable service he did for American youth all through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, because it still plays, to to put this liberating movie up where people are transgender, transsexual, transvestite, trans everything, transgressive. Well, he also was, uh, they, they put him in charge of uh, black films and, and also mm. uh, foreign film distribution. It was like, you know, we don't know what to do, help us. Right, and he had these wonderful ideas, and obviously really cared. Uh, gave it a personal touch. Oh my well, god! You know, it, it makes me think of the the only time I ever saw um, a Star Wars film in San Francisco. I was taken against my will. I was at the Strand. I expressed my displeasure, and we were up in the balcony, and a gay couple handed me a joint. Mm-hmm. 
Did this take some of the edge off of your no, but snobbish like how San attitude But how San Francisco in those days is that. You know, of course like they in were smoking ratty, a joint to watch the Star Wars movie. A ratty theater. It's and, a space opera. There's going to be spaceships they, chasing each other. They heard me and they heard my, you know. Yeah, you're, you're whinging. <laughs> I don't want to see this movie. Why couldn't we have gone to see something I like? Isn't there Here, a, smoke a, a cocktail film yeah. on? Why don't you just take a hit and <laughs> dig the spaceships for a while. And then... <laughs> And then you're like, okay, I like it. Um, it's a really weird movie. He's a fantastic figure um, in black history because there still haven't been very many studios, if any. Well, the, and the point of the, the article is, why have we not heard about this man, Ashley Boone? Oh, really? I can answer that. I'm a white man show business. Let me just answer that for you. Okay, thank you. Thanks for asking. Good question. Good team spirit. Um, February 11th, it's, we're recording this uh, on um, President's Day. And... Um, uh, it, which is a weird conflation. I'm really old. And how old are you? Fuck you. That's how old I am. There's a weird conflation of when we, I was a kid. What was it like when McKinley died? Well, I just wanted to talk about that for a little bit. I was taking a steamboat. Um, uh, the Panama Canal hadn't been built yet. And <laughs> we were going around the horn, Jennifer. And a terrible southwester struck up off, uh, off of Tierra del Fuego. Well, I using my only my wits and what guile and uh, nature had given me, I was able to quickly make my way to the foredeck, where we lowered some boats and uh, in, a, in a very well-timed operation, considering the weather. And finally, when we landed on uh, Ptarmigan Island, we were befriended by some stormy patrols who had uh, caught in the webbing of their feet uh, cold drinks and tin goods, and so that's how we were able to live. Uh, for a good deal of the time. I, I of course, had managed How to How convenient. It. it was just... I mean, I thought we were going to get kidnapped by pirates. Um, when McKinley was shot, it was a terrible moment uh, for my family because we'd been McKinleyites for a really long time. Um, who succeeded? Doesn't TR succeed him? Oh, God. Doesn't he? Mm, bad history on this show. Yikes. Here we go. Uh, the Atlantic, uh, which has been around since then. The Atlantic was a magazine... Um, a hundred and more years ago, 150, I should say. Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States. And part of President's Day is we're celebrating um, Washington's birthday, and part of it is celebrating Lincoln's birthday. When I was a kid, when, during the McKinley administration, and uh, right before Teddy Roosevelt solved the Russian-Japanese War of 1905 and got the Nobel Prize for it, a uh, very big moment in my childhood, <laughs> We were always uh, Roosevelt people. The uh, uh, um, yes, it, Cle the, Cleveland, and then McKinley, then T.R. T.R. See, I don't know. I'm not dumb about everything. And then after T.R., who's the president who won't cop out when there's danger all about Taft? Right on, Warren <laughs> Thomas, ladies and gentlemen, our good buddy. That was his joke. Um, they, February 12th was Lincoln's birthday, which we all knew. And then February 17th, have I forgotten Washington's birthday? I think I have. Um, Washington I was never quite as interested in. Um, we all knew this. We had to write book reports about Lincoln when we were little. We had to make little, you know, shrines to him on, on his birthday and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, we had the day off at school. There was a lot of paper craft yeah, there was. Yeah, I remember making like a blue affair that had a flag and him sitting in the chair and all that jazz. We were still really into it when I was little, you know, getting into the slave owners and uh, whatnot. Lincoln, of course, notably not a slave owner, making him... Uh, the greatest of all 19th century presidents and possibly the greatest president the country ever produced in so much as... We're trying to remember presidents. Well, we're trying to remember when people acted like there was a presidency. Of course, as we've discussed on the show, uh, Lincoln used the power of his office with a terrible latitude and uh, 
suspended the writ of habeas corpus and had people people in the press jailed and uh, massacred Indians and yes. uh, did all sorts of things and waged a war that cost the lives of millions of Americans um, to keep the Union together. However, um, one wonders about the wisdom of letting this um, country split into not geographically and have part of it be a slave state and part of it not be a slave state. I don't think that works either, even though we're still fighting the Civil War and Trump is the latest rendition mm-hmm. of the Civil War. And not just Trump, because he's a moron um, figurehead, but the people that want this, the white supremacists and the gun owners and people who support the prison system. I've drifted terribly, but I think you'll find the magnificently interesting part of what's going on is coming up next. Um, Abraham Lincoln... He's a complex individual, and I think that's why we all um, find him as interesting uh, and compelling and stays in history like very few figures in American history. People have an idea of what Abraham Lincoln was like. We know he was tall. We know that he was um, not a, a – in general, he wasn't a dissembling idiot. He did not lie. Mm-hmm. Um, honest. When your nickname's Honest Abe, you've you got to earn that. He uh, had a, a, a tremendous capacity for writing and um, – Poetry. Well, I was just going to say his, his memorable speeches. His speeches are, he said the better angels of our nature. That's not the Bible. That's not Shakespeare. The government of the of the people, by the people, for the people. People always use the of part, but isn't it supposed to be read? Government of the people, for the people, by the people, shall not perish from the earth. That's him. Um, he is a, 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 a depressed figure um, with a, a wife who has um, a mental illness and, and loses children mm-hmm. um, in, in his life as an adult. Uh, he tries to keep his own son from serving in the army because him and his wife were so panicked over losing Robert. Then Robert later went on, of course, to horribly be with uh, both Garfield and I think it was at McKinley's as well. Oh, so Robert, God. the curse of being Robert uh, Lincoln, who was, a, who was a Secretary of State on mm-hmm. his own, by the mm-hmm. way, and a state's person of some uh, measure, um, obviously. When Lincoln... Uh, was killed by the racist. Uh, they took a train across the country to let everybody see him. They, they took, made a special train and they put him in a casket closed with bunting on it and whatnot, but they left the car out in the open so that every place mm-hmm. they went and they stopped at everybody siding, it took days because people were in serious mourning. And then what happened after him, of course, is we got one of the... In, in a pantheon of white supremacists, which our presidents have uh, the distinction of being. Well, it's it's good to remember that, too, that not only have we always been a, a nation plagued by violence, but we've always had white supremacists in government positions, and hmm. often president. Certainly. Uh, Andrew Johnson being the notable one in this case, succeeding Lincoln and um, trying to uh, was impeached, much like um, our current white supremacist president. And uh, I mean, I think we had a discussion once on the show where I said I felt there was like four that weren't, which is kind of what it boils down to. Um, Roosevelt, mm, you know, the race relations are not his strong suit. Let's put it that way. Johnson, uh, Clinton, Carter, Obama, uh, the ones that I think weren't abject racists. Reagan... Yeah. Kind of racist. Oh, yes. Super racist. Nixon, wildly racist. Yes. Um, I, I, I just, you know, he wasn't enlightened, let's it's put it that way. It's thin on the ground. Yeah, it's really thin on the ground. And I'm talking about the nice ones. Some of these are like, you know, re- actually, you know, okay. What are, what are we... Uh, getting into here? No, but what are we calling nice? Well, nice is completely subjective. Nice um, to other white guys? He, yeah. Lincoln... Um, 
signed the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the slaves, and then forced through through jiggery pokery and politics, bribery and strong arming, uh, got the Thirteenth Amendment passed. Now, if any student of Ava DuVernay will tell you that the Thirteenth Amendment doesn't alleviate slavery, it enshrines slavery. And we've gone into that on the show quite a lot because it, it creates the prison state, which is the cousin of the, hmm, is the son and daughter of the slave state. So why am I reading all this? Because the Atlantic has the very good grace to give Barack Obama a chance to talk about the presidents he liked when he was in the White House. And that's why I'm going to read this very short piece, if you don't mind, by Barack Obama. Please. who was um, the last uh, legally elected president of the United States and a man of some uh, eloquence of turn, or turn of eloquence, rather. Um, you'll, you may remember, we are who we've been waiting for and the audacity of hope. Uh, he always kept an optimistic outlook. Um, Lincoln is a president I turn to often. From time to time, I'll walk over to the Lincoln bedroom and reread the handwritten Gettysburg Address encased in glass, or reflect on the Emancipation Proclamation, which hangs in the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. Or pull a volume of his writings from the library in search of lessons to draw. Always thoughtful, always eloquent, Lincoln's writings speak to me as they speak to so many Americans, reminding us what is best about ourselves and the union he saved. That though we may have our differences, we are one people and we are one nation united by a common creed. The Alexander Garnett portrait is at the top of this, is what um, starts, is this, the starting point for this conversation, this meditation by Barack right. Obama. So iconic. It's the one that was taken four months before, three months before he uh, was taken from us. And there's a crack in the top of the pane of the photographic, uh, what did they call that when those days when they would put it on a... A plate? A plate. A plate. The top of the plate is cracked straight across, mm-hmm. almost coinciding with where the bullet goes in, and that's the duality of this painting uh, portrait, is he looks 100 years older than he does when Doesn't he goes he? into office. It, I, but I don't think he slept for five years. I really don't. For the entirety of the Civil War, I don't think he slept but a couple hours a night. And um, he also, you know, was dealing with... Um, a vociferous racist Democratic Party in those days mm-hmm. that was trying to defy him at every turn and was clearly sympathetic to the South in a lot of ways. Um, why do you mention the crack in the bullet? Because it's seen two ways. One, there's the assassination, and two, there's the... the he's split in half like the United States. He's, he's de- demarcated with a line, and he was the one who insisted that that line never be there, that it be taken away, and he was willing to do anything to kind of... It's so strange that Ford's Theater has is, is always been an operating theater. It still is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, as a kid, saw many plays there. Right. And you and I went, and uh, downstairs is his... Uh, the, the coat he was wearing on the night. Yeah, especially made by Brooks Brothers, with the blood still on it. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, I remember bawling when we saw it. And also, to take you back even more to Washington, D.C., not only did we go to Ford's Theater that year, I believe I did a TV show that Marcel Marceau, the famous mime, appeared on. Oh, yeah. And he was playing Ford's Theater. Yes. yes. That weekend. And uh, he, he was uh, telling us about uh, his family's uh, history in the resistance during World War II. 
a lot of his family was deported, which I did not know about Marcel Morceau. He was, it was fascinating getting to spend an hour with him making this, it was like a little kind was, of PBS TV show. It was magic, show. yeah, to be able to speak with him, and he was so uh, warm. Get it? Speak with Marcel Morceau. Really? Well, famously the quietest performer of all time, he never said a word <laughs> on stage. He had a beautiful plummy voice, and he spoke with, um, he spoke real good English, real good. <laughs> his English was well-spoken, and he, um, I remember there was a bunch of uh, the green grapes on the table. What are those, the Thompsons? What are the light green ones? Yeah, some of them are Thompson. And, yeah. and he was, because he's French, he was hungry, obviously. I'm thinking that. He was in fabulous shape. He was well, wasn't his, he doing a show that night? Yeah, no, he had a show that night. I mean, he was. We took a picture with him. There's a picture yeah. of you and me holding Marcel Marceau. Yeah. And he's eight, 79, 80, and whipped in. Yeah. And he told us he was in World War II, that his family was deported. Uh, and the deportation that he had to survive that and, uh, that Pip, his famous character Beep, uh, which is the name of the white-faced mime that we all see as the example of every uh-huh. mime ever, a beret, a striped shirt, and the white fa- painted face with the cheeks and the lips mm-hmm. is Marcel Marceau. Mm-hmm. That character Beep, he said, he told us was based on Pip from Great Expectations by Charles Dickens, which he had loved as a child. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. So he was macking down on these grapes. And he couldn't help but be impish. Oh my God, he was hilarious. And really a scamp. Yes. And he was eating these grapes furiously. I assume he hadn't eaten all day because he looked like a dancer. And um, (laughs) at one point he stopped eating them for one second and went, good grapes, like that. (laughs) And then carried on eating them. (laughs) Um, Anyway, why are we going all into this? It's Black History Month. And um, um, up until Barack Obama or perhaps LBJ, Lincoln certainly has uh, uh, the, the most representative of, uh, of black history in terms of uh, Barack Obama having to read the Emancipation Proclamation in the Oval Office, which well, is I, unbelievably I moving. I wonder if that's why 45 spends so little time there. One, two, he's not operating anymore. He's basically boiled the job down to what he wants it to do, which is go golfing, take a couple meetings, and give rallies. That's all. He really didn't ever want to do the day-to-day nuts and bolts of reading position papers. And I don't don't think he can. No. Abraham Lincoln, as we just said, stayed up every night reading um, uh, uh, casualty lists, um, looking at troop movements, ordering generals around, being in touch with the War Department. Every department was pressed into play to the very limit of their fucking stretched being in the 1860s when we're communicating by telegraph, so they had instantaneous communication and photograph, which ran along the telegraph and you could be in papers. So there, the Civil Wars covered you know, short of smartphones and telephones, it's a kind of a modern war. There's no mm-hmm. movies yet, mm-hmm. but the pictures... But there's of, paintings. There's paintings, and photographs were posted every day in major papers of, of dead soldiers. Yes. So the public got to see that for, like, one of the first times to really experience that sort of firsthand... This is what a field of your dead sons looks like, you know, just that terrible... Um, well, I didn't want the show to be that morbid, but the point is this. It's, it's impossible with Lincoln to, for it not to be. And this is what Obama wrote. Lincoln is revered by the American... Um, there is in the photographer's print something in the subject's spirit, an upturned lip, the faintest hint of a smile. Such reverence is richly deserved. Lincoln is revered by the American people. Such reverence is richly deserved, but it comes at a cost. The Lincoln who holds a place in our national memory is less a man than an icon, a face carved in black hills, a marble giant towering over us on a mall. Three years before he entered Gardner's studio, Lincoln termed the United States in one of his early messages to Congress, quote, the last best hope of Earth, 
Considering our fragile union was not 100 years old and stood a good chance of dissolving, it was an improbable thing to say. But Lincoln saw beyond the bloodshed and division. You can hear Obama saying this. Mm-hmm. He saw us not only as we were, but as we might be. Well, it's a good reminder. How many times has this country been on the brink? Well, certainly, uh, part of why I wanted to read this one was because of that exact motion notion. Um, we're in a mood right now where we can see the dissolution of this happening in real time in front of us. And uh, a couple of other weird moves here and there. Uh, he, he loses and he won't leave. He wins and he won't leave. He, whatever, you know, make us all of them. Maybe he just it. drives around and around at the Daytona 500. Well, what was the name of it? The Beast? And you noticed it was tilting to one side. I'm not saying which side he was on. Uh, <laughs> talk about Taft. Uh, he calls on us through the ages to commit ourselves to the unfinished work he so nobly advanced, the work of perfecting our union. Um, I don't what think, a concept. I, right? I don't think um, Barack Obama... Um, ever back down from a challenge. And I don't think Michelle did either. Oh, no. And I think that being president for eight years while uh, the Koch brothers organized the Tea Party, while McConnell entrenched the Senate in against him, while the forces that are lined up right now that created the perfect storm that we had in 2016 with the country corruption and media influence and, and the dissolution of the national security services, and, you know, ignoring them, lawlessness... All that was set in motion when Barack Obama was elected the first time because they literally couldn't stand it. Mm -hmm. And then the last vestige of whatever goodness was uh, between the two parties at one point was Mitt Romney actually voting to impeach this bloody president because Mitt Romney was such an old fashioned. <laughs> the, the Republicans of our youth that we, the, you know, although having said that, we just talked about Nixon and Reagan, so. Well, even Nixon read every morning before getting drunk and talking to portraits in the hallway. Yes, that's true. Reagan didn't. And, Reagan. and making an enemies list and trying to uh, demonize young people and black people. But other than that, he, he was and, and conducting uh, an illegal war in Southeast Asia and, and letting the uh, CIA transport drugs out of the Golden Triangle. Huh? And, you know, setting up you got, uh, I mean... Uh, well, see, the, the upside Angola is and, there's always been an inconceivable racist mess. Yes, I think you'll find that. So having said that, let's carry on. Um, uh, and it's, it's just heartening to know that people like Obama, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton, Pelosi, uh, Kamala Harris, they, the number of people, Harry Reid, that Barbara Lee, devoted Maxine Waters. Uh, well, Elijah Cummings is gone. Yes. I meant John Lewis. Right, Uh that have devoted their, themselves uh, to trying to hold us all together. Well, like I said, they don't back down from challenges, and that's the tough part, to find that inside yourself. Abraham Lincoln had no choice. He moved forward, but he did do it. And Barack Obama, I think, felt the same way mm -hmm. and feels the same way, which is why would you go in and look at um, um, the Emancipation Proclamation and the Gettysburg Address? They're hanging there. Look at them time and time again because the... The strength that it took to sign those. Um, we didn't have gay marriage until the Obama administration, you guys. It didn't yes. happen in the 90s. Bill Clinton backed off at the very beginning of his administration. I'm allowing gay people into the military because it was still considered so controversial. And I was always mad at him for that because Truman had to integrate the army after World War II or the, the armed forces. And uh, it changes everything, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine the armed forces segregated. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, unimaginable. And, um, but that's what I mean about Roosevelt. Roosevelt was happy to let that carry on. 
Oh, yeah. Throughout the war. Whereas Truman actually had the balls to do something that was so unpopular, and you can bet it was unpopular. But he was also a, a good military man. Yep. And pragmatic about that. I don't yeah, think it was from uh, any sense of goodwill. Not at all. It doesn't matter what the motives are in a lot of times. Um, uh, 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 he had the good sense to bring General Douglas MacArthur home when MacArthur was becoming like a, you know, a, a warlord or whatever in in South in Asia. Don't call me on that. Don't contest me. Don't call me and tell me that I'm wrong about Douglas MacArthur. Florence Kennedy's birthday was February 11th. Speaking of great Americans, um, I, I put a little chapter over in my book, uh, the smartest book in the world. Just thought I'd pick that up. See how she, I threw that in? She said, don't agonize, organize. Yep. Florence Kennedy said a lot of great things. Don't agonize, organize is so good. If men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament. <laughs> and then uh, one of my favorites is... Um, uh, there are very few jobs that actually require a penis or vagina. All other jobs should be open to everybody. Well, what did she say? I, I uh, object to the fact that I, I can't wear slacks in the, in the court, and but the judge is in drag. Yeah, the judge is in drag is so good. She was one of the uh, first black women at her law school. Yeah, she in fact was. Uh, she was the eighth woman to ever go there. It was Columbia? Where, where am I? Yes, Columbia Law School in 51. Uh, there were eight women that year, and she was the second black woman allowed to be in. Sorry, not the first. She, uh, I mean, I, I was wrong. She confronted the dean in 48 on whether um, she was being denied admission because she was black, and the dean told her no, it was because she was a woman. Nice. Um, she went on to get the royalties back for uh, Charlie Parker's family and Billie Holiday's family. Isn't that exciting? And said that the fight was so terrible that it soured her forever on law, and that's when she became an activist and started, yes, the Feminist Party and the National Organization of Women. The Feminist Party backed a candidate immediately, and that candidate was Shirley Chisholm in 1972. Oh my God, that's so great. She also was a lawyer for the Black Panthers um, and the longest uh, civil suit in the history of the state of New York. And uh, she wore a bitching outfit. She wore pink glasses and a cowboy hat. Um, Sometimes a, a caramel leather vest. Clinton, as I recall, I want to say Clinton um, gave her a medal. Uh, I remember her in the chair with the, the hat on. Um, it, sweetie, if you're not living on the edge, then you're taking up space. Uh, she divorced a. She had an alcoholic husband, and she said, "Anyone who marries a what was it a, an alcoholic Welshman deserves what they get." Um, <laughs> the biggest sin is sitting on your ass. Mm -hmm. When you want to get to the suite, start in the streets. Freedom is like taking a bath. You got to keep doing it every day. Um, our parents had us so convinced we were precious by the time I found out I was nothing. It was already too late. I knew I was something. And then this one. I'm just a loud mouth, middle-aged colored lady with a fused spine and three feet of intestines missing. And a lot of people think I'm crazy. Maybe you do too, but I never stop to wonder why I'm not like other people. The mystery to me is why more people aren't like me. Oh, I love that quote. Yeah. Uh, Florence Kennedy, born February 11th. Huey P. Newton. Uh, Huey P. Newton is, uh, can accurately be described as a revolutionary mm -hmm. who um, was murdered under, um, you know, what was supposed to be, I think, a drug deal was how they characterized it in Oakland. Um, he'd been the um, one of the founding members with Bobby Seale of the Black Panther Party and, of course, was the head of the Revolutionary Wing. Had lots of ideas about um, black liberation. And one of them included arming themselves, which we've discussed on the show in previous episodes. And then finally that came to last a halt. Last week. Last week's episode, in fact. They, they, they came to a halt when they patrolled the um, state, uh, they, when they went to Sacramento and walked up and down the Capitol 
Funny, I wonder what the difference was them doing that and uh, white guys walking into a Starbucks in Texas. Or how about the 22,000 people that marched in the street with guns oh. two weeks ago with masks on in Virginia? And then Virginia did not with pass police the large magazine automatic weapon ban. That was today. shocking. Four Democrats jumped over. Virginia is a gun state. They saw that protest with the guys with the masks and they, they bowed to that, Jennifer. Huey P. Newton um, uh, is an astonishing figure in American politics and in black politics and in Bay Area uh, politics. They were based out of Oakland, although he wasn't from Oakland. His birthday is today, which is President's Day. Let me just play you a clip. Oppressing people of color all over the world and on a local level, the police, fashion police, are are uh, suppressing, repressing uh, the white revolutionaries as well as the blacks who uh, speak of and who are attempting to attain uh, liberation. So uh, I am not standing for violence, uh, but I do stand for self-defense. We struggle with all oppressed people. We struggle against the international bourgeoisie uh, with its home here in North America. Uh, we realize that no oppressive government, no fascist government uh, can exist uh, unless the United States uh, uh, imperialistic government uh, uh, supports it. So we know that the final battle will uh, occur here and this will be the battle of liberation for the whole world. How about those apples? He wrote several books, went to prison. Um, they patrolled the neighborhood with guns, and he was in an altercation with an Oakland cop and killed him and went to prison for it and came back out of prison, got a doctorate, and wrote several books on revolution and the history of the Black Panthers. Um, they're an indelible part of um, the Bay Area. Oh, there's a picture of him that just came up on my computer here. Mm -hmm. The one of him sitting with a, um, a gun in one hand. In the Cobra wicker chair. Yeah, with a beret on and a black leather jacket. Our good friend uh, Roger Smith uh, did the one-man show about him that Spike Lee filmed, mm -hmm. which is very illuminating if you want to learn about <clears throat> U.E.P. Newton from a drama point of view. It presented a... It's always easier, I think, to ingest than history. Uh, fictionalization of history and or illustration of history, I think, is always a... There were so many women in the... Uh, who were actually you, you had one as a professor did you know organizing the black panthers like kathleen cleaver and yes uh, eldridge cleaver Brown was the and, um, minister of information and, and kathleen I, cleaver sorry sorry please <laughs> i was just going to say that i i just read today that there's there's never a picture of bobby seal huey newton and eldridge cleaver together because one of them was always in prison oh or in exile right always incarcerated or on the run um, what's that um, picture, Black Power mixtape? Oh, that's good. Really good. Um, the Swedish film. Yes. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of great... Um, Always, I recommend Eyes on the Prize, the PBS documentary uh, about black history. Oh, it's extraordinary. And um, it's the, all the stuff they don't teach you in school. Well, it documents the how the FBI just uh, terrorized them. Um it was it's it's very illuminating and uh yeah the fbi terrorized them they were giving out free breakfast our friend warren thomas told us about it all the right, time we He'd talked say, about that last week oh, okay all right here's a couple quotes from huey p newton um white america seen to it black history has been suppressed in schools and in american history books you're asking me about mr boone and why he's not known um, better in film. The bravery of hundreds of our ancestors who took part in slave rebellions has been lost in the mist of time since plantation owners did their best to prevent any written accounts of uprisings. And then this one I thought was an interesting quote. 
Um, and I'm, I can only attribute it to, of course, he, uh, as I say, got a doctorate and wrote a bunch of books. During those long years in the Oakland Public Schools, I did not have one teacher who taught me anything relevant to my own life or experience. Not one instructor ever awoke in me a desire to learn more or to question or explore the worlds of literature, science, and history. All they did was try to rob me of the sense of my own uniqueness and worth, and in the process nearly killed my urge to inquire. Imagine the curriculum that he was having to be taught mm. in the 50s and you know early 60s. Well, since uh, it's only recently that, that plantations have included their black history. You mean included the story of the slaves? Yeah, who were of everyone that worked who there. Who were chattel there? Um, and I remember as a kid when we would uh, pass through the southern states and every uh, every plantation fetishized uh, minutia related to white soldiers right. of the Confederacy. Yes. It, it was it was really gruesome. Then he marched an extra four miles down. Really gruesome. Nothing but goober peas. And, and there's really a... Yes, a, I said goober peas. Wow. There's really a movement now to um, redress, to explain the real history of those uh, plantations, and to stop them from being uh, venues for weddings and parties. You know, partying... Uh, where the oppressed uh, built your legacy as as American as cherry pie. Sort of like how uh, one of 45's uh, wall uh, sprees is is uh, destroying an Arizona indigenous people's burial ground. Well, they're digging up the burial ground so that they can put the wall in to keep people out who aren't from here. See? You understand the logic of it. <laughs> The people who are from here, they have no say in whether or not a wall gets built on their property to keep the people who are coming in. Puritans go home. Wow. Yeah, well, it always. Sit, turn the Mayflower around, I says, <laughs> and take the Nina and the Pinto with you. Thomas Jefferson, this is from, fantastically, the Observer Reporter of Washington County in Pennsylvania. And oh, which reminds me, just briefly, McClatchy is, is declared bankruptcy. And it endangers a bunch of papers. And please, if you can, get a subscription to your local paper. Yeah, it's a, it's important. That's why I'm reading from uh, the, uh, what is it? The Observer it's Reporter really of Washington, important. Pennsylvania. Well, first of all, it keeps people employed. Secondly, um, local reporting led to Jeffrey Epstein being busted. Local reporting leads to everything. Political corruption yeah. locally. Uh, you, yeah. I mean, it's just every, every aspect. Uh, the LA Times has been doing a great series on uh, environmental dangers, uh, about homelessness. Uh, they cover uh, the Latin Well, they have that sexy new publisher, and they brought in a lot of good people. Well, thank God. He saved the paper, though, because the paper was really good in the 80s. And then, uh, you know, the, the reality hit, and they got bought up. And then the the new owners really seen to it that they've gotten back to the... They've hired more journalists. <sighs> But it's a tough guy. Thomas Jefferson was a brilliant polymath. I'll, I'll, let me give this person's byline here. Brad Hunt. And that's H-U-N-D-T because it's in Pennsylvania. Thomas Jefferson was a brilliant polymath and a statesman for the ages who penned the Declaration of Independence when he was 34, founded the University of Virginia, and guided our democracy when it was still taking baby steps. No, wait. And I'm going to drop an R-bomb here. Thomas Jefferson was a rapist who fathered six of his 11 children with the slave Sally Hemings, who was 30 years his junior and might have well have been 14 when they had their first sexual encounter. Whether Thomas Jefferson was one of history's heroes or villains is a subject that many teachers in high schools, colleges, and universities are having to confront. Mm -hmm. This article's from today. I mean, the, the 
number of issues that are overdue and confronting. Yep. We were taught that they were um, brave and resolute and true. I don't remember a lot of, uh, in early grade school, a lot of uh, conflicting viewpoints. It wasn't until you got a little older and you were watching the news at night and you saw things like the Soledad brothers getting you know, put in prison, watching my parents react to the Black Power movement, that you started to think maybe there was another kind of history. Well, I remember uh, with my parents following the trail, Chief Joseph's Trail of Tears and going, wait a minute, this didn't get covered. Right. How come the, the neighbors say pretty important. Um, um, having to die on moss because they're being chased by federal troops across uh, Idaho or whatever isn't uh, covered the way, say, um, you know, as you say, uh, infantrymen and... and Longstreet's army were covered. Um. At Washington Junior Senior High School, eighth grade history teacher Aaron Moore uses the musical Hamilton and the field trip to Gettysburg. Mind you, I told you they were in Washington, Pennsylvania, so they could take a field trip to Gettysburg, which is still an enormous battlefield. Have you ever been there, Jennifer? Which place? Gettysburg? Yes, of course. Ah. Um, to get her uh, students interested in the subject. She's straightforward about the horrors of slavery and that Washington, Jefferson, and other founders were slave owners. Moore believes it is okay if students end up not liking them. Um, that's what, an option we were never given when I was little. The discussion of slavery, in my recollection, was a scamp on the ground. And I'm going to tell a story here, and if I've told it before, you can stop me. You can even throw me off my own podcast. Um, when I was in fifth grade is when... Um, Black History Month started, and my teacher, Mr. Clark, who uh, was quite good at English and music and not very good at relating to children, um, decided that we were going to do a black history presentation in our all-white class in San Carlos. There were four black children in our school, as I recall, and um, so uh, Stephanie Allen, who I was in the same grade as and knew since I was a kid, uh, all through high school and everything, uh, wasn't in Mr. Clark's class somehow. In any case, we uh, put on a black history um, show, and it was um, decided, and I can't remember if it was Mr. Clark's decision or not, to not show us because we were white. So a scrim was erected and a light cast from behind, so we were in silhouette. So all of the white kids pretended to be all of these famous black figures, and they were Harriet Tubman, George Washington Carver, um, Willie Mays, Ralph, yeah. Willie Mays, oh, we're, this is San Carlos in the set, you know, uh, the town I'm from is baseball mad. Willie Mays, no, in, no, Willie Mays is a great American. Shocker. In, in San Carlos, California, Barry Bonds and Willie Mays are like, like they're Barry, Bobby Bonds, great, they were great Americans. They're not just ball players. They're, they're, you know, you're in, and, um, uh, did I say Ralph Bunch, I believe? Booker T. Washington. Um, all the ones you were allowed then to, uh. I've been reading the, the Booker T., uh, time, what was it called? Time, let's tie it. Yeah, but that's not, that's Booker T, the, of, the, of the MGs. Right, but his dad <laughs> was, of course, Booker T. Washington, was named for Booker, Booker yes. T. Washington and was a school teacher at a Booker T. Washington school. Was he really? Yeah. His father? Yeah. So Booker T. Washington really has the legacy of yes. Booker T. Washington. Yes. Well, I didn't think he didn't. Oh, that's astonishing. So well, anyway, his name is Booker T. Jones, but yes, Booker T. Jones. We we got up behind this thing. Mm. Louis Armstrong, who had just passed, it was seventies, and he had just been in, I think, Hello Dolly's his last movie. Armstrong passed in seventies, my recollection. In any case, maybe seventy one. Uh, he was born on the third of July, was it? 
for real. Louis Armstrong says so. Of course. Um, we because he had to invent jazz. I believe I yes, I believe I wrote Willie Mays and possibly Louis Armstrong's bio for the show. I couldn't get a look in performing, and I was really upset about it. I wanted to be Willie Mays, but a friend of mine did it instead. Which all he did was mime, like, catching balls and throwing them and stuff. He had a glove on. It was really <laughs> lame. It was great. So I believe I wrote the Willie Mays one. Um, and then I think I punched up the Louis Armstrong one because they didn't know This anything. is fifth grade? I know it sounds strange to all of our listeners and to you, Jennifer, but in fifth grade, I wrote the Willie Mays bio, and yeah, I... Yeah, that's amazing. And I, and I punched up the Louis Armstrong one with some salient facts that they had neglected to... Uh, my recollection is Scott Schauer and I had a discussion over some facts he had omitted from Armstrong's biography that I felt were of illustrative interest <laughs> to the <laughs> white parents who were coming to see this black history show that we did. <laughs> I don't think um, any great women black authors, uh, and certainly Fannie Lou Hamer and um, uh, Rosa Parks, I don't, Rosa Parks might have been in it, but I, my recollection is Harriet Tubman might have been Well, there. and then remember when Rosa Parks was sold as this uh, kindly older lady uh, like Helen Keller having, instead of right, fiery. Instead of having a lifetime of activism. Yeah. And organizing. Being, yeah, being one of the, well, yeah, there's no overemphasizing Rosa Parks. Uh, and so anyway, we performed it, and uh, the guy from the San Mateo Times came, which was a bigger local paper. The, our paper in San Carlos was the Inquirer. Yes, every little town had its own paper. And this is how we communicated, one, those days. But two, uh, San Carlos had 21,000 people. That's how small the town I grew up in was. Mind you, situated sexily next to Redwood City, which had a, a big Latin population, which made Redwood City very exotic for us coming from San Carlos because you could get awesome Mexican food and they had a giant Cinco de Mayo. Uh, yeah, and then Forrest, uh, uh, Forrest's dad owned a record store and he would set up a record booth with Latin music at the Cinco That's de so Mayo. Cool. So we would go to that and hang out at his booth and then go get churros. and you know. So that made it fun. Um, <laughs> Uh, the San Mateo paper uh, guy interviewed Mr. Clark and then he watched the show and then he, he wrote it up and Mr. Clark wrote it in the next day and he, and it, and he started to read it to us and he, I don't think he'd read it first and he went, an all-white class at San Carlos um, Heather Elementary School and then he looked up at us and went, I don't think he had to mention that we were all white. And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> Even as a ten-year-old, you're like, I think uh, he did. Yeah, I think he did. Yeah, kind he of painful. But he, he wasn't making a value judgment as much as pointing out that San Carlos, as my joke goes, in those days, the whitest place on the face of the earth. Um, so that's my um, story, and I'm sticking to it. And uh, oh, I want to talk about one other thing that we. Um, well, go ahead. When you were talking about uh, local papers. What? Yeah, I'm going to wedge that in again. Oh, God. Really? Um, there was a, a an item in the Sacramento Bee last week that was a, a, just a small detail, but I just thought it made me think of the importance of, of getting the paper of, really? The uh, journalist for the Sacramento Bee uh, noted that he was reading the letters that they get from prison. Uh-huh. 
And, who read the papers? Yeah, and he's and he mentioned uh, this one prisoner whose family had gotten him a subscription, mm-hmm. and he wanted he was uh, you know all fired up and and uh, wanted to critique this one item, and that's how closely he was following. Mm-hmm this series of columns that's how important it was and imagine then, the communication that you require when you're and in then prison. it just made me think like he his family had to get him a subscription yes why don't the prisons give everyone a subscription to newspapers exactly and then uh there there was a an item about uh, and the sack b is a good paper a lot of prisons charge the prisoners to read books mm-hmm. and the the prison in West Virginia charges five cents a minute. Is, you, is there a way to give to them? Well, exactly. I, I don't have a site, but if, if I uh, find one, if someone finds one, uh, let us know. Um, but you can definitely, uh, there's programs that. How can you charge people to read? It's, it's so it's, it's so awful. It's so awful. You don't want to better people when they're in uh, there? Not anymore. Uh, evidently, there's no because more you rehabilitation. Think of, uh, when Martin Luther King Jr. was in uh, jail, he, he wrote the famous letter. Uh, so many, Malcolm X wrote his autobiography yes. in jail. Um, the idea of denying people mm-hmm. the chance to... Some people remake wrote their, their lives. book in blood on toilet paper. So there's... Jean Genet wrote his books in prison. Mm. And Oscar Wilde. Speaking of Oscar Wilde, uh, we'll be showing Ridicule by Patrice Leconte, the 25th, um, at the uh, Aero Theater, the Greg Proust Film Club. Jennifer chose it. It's a bitching film about um, manners and uh, madness. and So very witty and so very biting. And royalty and uh, seduction and all those things. I'll be going to San Francisco for Planned Parenthood. Um, that's the Planned Parenthood of Northern California. That's on the 27th of February. And uh, it'll be me and Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Yes, you heard me. <laughs> Don't forget to touch the ping. Uh, it's at Bimbo's 365, which is one of the hipper venues in San Francisco. It's been there. Oh, golly. Before it was Bimbo's, it was the Bell Tabaran. How old do you reckon that building is? From the teens, the 20s? I think the 20s Really and 30s. sexy. It has a beautiful entrance. And then yeah. when you get inside, it's this it's red velvet lounge. world of, yeah. yeah. What was it? It's like where the mafia has its prom. Um, it's really cute. So come and see us there. That's a really worthy event. Um, Planned Parenthood of Northern California is uh, a very important part of women's health in uh, Northern California. And they are able to put on groovy events like this because they have a lot of support, unlike some. Planned Parenthoods. They, they do get a lot of support. You may think about giving to Planned Parenthood in general. Mm-hmm. And, and independent clinics. Um, which you can find at um, Abortion AF, um, our good friend Liz Winstead's site. Let's see here. Oh, sorry. Are you going to read your... Yeah, go ahead. I wanted to mention our friend Amy Shoulders' film. Oh, yes. Disclosure. Uh, directed by Sam Feeder. It had its uh, debut at Sundance, and it's about representation of trans people in film. And it's just so very important, and they worked so hard on it. It's narrated by Laverne Cox. Uh, lots of interviews with with uh, various actors and personalities, and it's just beautiful that they got it together. When we went to that, did we, we went to a, a fundraiser for it uh-huh. some time ago, and, and they showed a, a reel that was the um, 
I guess the promo reel for the picture. Right, the concept. And it was really uh, fascinating to see the history of representation of trans people in pictures and how it's changed and how it's gotten sexualized and how it's gotten all these things. And yet, uh, it, it seems to be the last frontier for a lot of uh, cisgendered people. Like, they really are huffy about it still. And I, it really is awful, I think, um, well, how many of them are seem so ruffled by the whole idea. It, it, it's really important uh, for them to be represented. Uh, they're often victimized. Oh, I mean, before the, everyone else. The murder rate is, is yeah. shocking. The idea that other... that cisgendered people should be intimidated or afraid is uh, is anathema. Well, I'm afraid if Mitch McConnell comes into the bathroom with me. Um, Who's Live Anyway is uh, one of the greatest improv shows of all time. We've been on uh, television since 1958. We started with Ed Wynn. And um, then later we were on um, Steve Allen's show for a couple of years. Uh, Gary Moore, you may remember us over the years. Lucille Ball, whatnot. Um, uh, This particular version is, uh, I think you'll find the classic rock Beatles version, it's Jeff Davis, Joel Murray, Ryan Stiles, and me, Greg Law. Uh, we'll be at the Hard Rock Casino. Yeah, that's right. What, you know what rocks hard? The Hard Rock. And we're gonna. It says Vancouver, but the truth is, it's in Coquitlam, which is a much better name than uh, Vancouver's a beautiful <laughs> name. George Vancouver was, as you know, Captain Cook's um, second in command. And then when uh, the good captain was murdered, or when whatever happened in that horrible incident in Hawaii, <laughs> um, George took over the thing, and um, then. Proceeded much as his captain had done so much of the South Pacific and Australia for white people of the 18th century, 19th century, 18th century. He, <laughs> George, um, went to the west coast of North America and um, gave his name to Vancouver and because of his extensive mapping of the inlets, islands, and um, in any case, we'll be in Coquitlam, which is a, a beautiful uh, First Nations name. That's the um, 20th and 21st. And then the 22nd and 23rd will be at the River Rock, and that's in Richmond, um, B.C. Then the week after that, March 6th, we'll be at the Moore Theater in Seattle. And then up in um, Ana Cortez, March 7th and 8th, at the Swinomish Casino and Lodge, where the seafood is nothing to sneeze at. The Moore Theater in Seattle is one of our favorite gigs in the entire year. We just played San Jose Civic. And if you don't mind, I have to tell, I think I've told this one before, but if I have, you can stop me and then I'll move to another one. Um, We played the San Jose Civic last uh, Saturday with the group and it was a fantastic show. There was a million people in and the place went bananas. And I told you today what I told Jeff when we were leaving. Um, I didn't want to get off stage (laughs) because I was having so much goddamn fun doing improv with the guys. Outside the San Jose Civic, I tried to recollect all the times I'd been there. And then, of course, they were all soaked in a haze of, you know, tequila and marijuana. And uh, inside, uh, two pictures outside painted on the wall, like when you worked for um, George at Tower Records in San Francisco, and you guys used to do the enormous album covers that were outside the old tower in the city and all the towers, Sacramento, why not? But that was a beautiful airbrushed, Re, uh, total copies of album covers and Never publicity photos. Never beautiful, but you could get a really good look at Stevie Nicks's nostrils. But, but I was going to say, but from 400 yards away. Those were like Mount Rushmore <laughs> big. They were so big, you could see them from across the street. You could see them driving, which is what made Tower. So you drive by Tower and there'd be a gallery of the latest what albums. What I loved about George was he never remembered how much he was paying me week by week. Did you ever up it uh, secretively? Well, you know, give yourself a raise? 
he he started pretty high. I know, so. but did you ever go like oh, three fifty? <laughs> and he was like, oh, three fifty, right? I, I remember he said to you when you finally left his employ, "Hey, keep me uh, keep me posted where the parties are." So, what did he say? Yeah, he did say that. Yeah, he and was, I was a party like, animal. Yeah, never good. Thanks. You did, and this is a adjunct. Uh, this is a detour I'm taking because uh, this connects to the San Jose story. You saw the tubes, but with Todd Rundgren singing lead. In George's studio, that was the smallest space, and I took your friend, Jeff. That's right. Our good friend, Jeff, who I grew up with. Yeah, and uh, it was... Jeff and I saw the tubes on acid, I think, a couple of times. It was crazy, though. We were were in, like, basically someone's living room with the tubes performing with Todd Redbread. But Fee wasn't there. It was Todd. Yeah. And Fee's a very good friend of the show and a very good friend of ours and um, is a... Truly one of the, one, great rock stars, uh, lead singers of all time, but two, one of the great people of all time. He's just a smashing individual. Yeah, he's lovely. Um, so Jennifer saw them with Todd Rundgren. So how's that rock cred? You saw Todd Rundgren front the tubes. <laughs> um, and I took you to see the tubes, if you recall, at um, the, not what used to be co- uh, Cobbs on Columbus. What was that called? Wolfgang's. Mm-hmm. Didn't I take you to see the tubes there? Mm-hmm. And Mingo even was in the band then. So the other night we're playing San Jose Civic, Jennifer. Well, I drew with Prairie Prince. He would come in. But and Prairie was the graphic out. artist. Prairie, would, yeah, Michael would. were the geniuses behind the tubes look. Yeah. The, the reason why they had the weird two tube thingies and the pansexual and the shirts with their there faces on. There was so much going on. Do you remember on? the shirts and with so the faces many on? People. Yeah. Yeah. Too many people. Yeah. It was such a San Francisco thing. It was like, what if everyone's on the group? And it's like, you know, you didn't need mm, everyone on the how group. How do you tour if you have 74 so people? So the guy I met the other night at San Jose Civic, who was our stage manager, toured with them for seven years from the 70s to the early 80s. And he told me they never made any money because they had such a giant... There was a hundred, you know... I mean, I can recall shows where there were literally at one point like 50 people on stage. And you're and like, okay. Props. Mm. The death of wit, as Jim Samuels said. <laughs> uh, Jim Samuels, who was one of the most gorgeous humans that ever lived. Uh, they had props. They had costumes. They had sex. The tawdry dick jokes. And um, uh, chicks. chicks. Cost- costume it, changes. Oh, uh, loads of costume changes. A bunch of dancers, uh, men and women, who were all sort of... Uh, like Rocky Horror pervy, like that was going on, and in various states of undress sometimes. And then Ree would come out and sing with V, they tuned Don't Touch Me There. And that was always uh, one scenario was they would be on a motorcycle and they would, which they always did, unzip that jacket. But one of the scenarios they started with was that um, she was the teacher and he came into class and she's like, Waybill, see me after class. And then the motorcycle came really? out. Yeah. Unzip that jacket. <clears throat> That leather smells so sweet. Yeah. Anyways, uh, what's the point of this story? He God, told I'd me, like to know. Wow. <laughs> what? He toured with the Tubes for years, and he was on the video crew. And the Tubes had... Okay, look, stop right there. We've already talked about the, the set, the prop, the costumes. There's a video crew? They had live cameras on stage and a constant flow of video seven years before MTV. Was that Michael's? Bad. Michael and Perry, I think. Uh, well, I asked him, you know, and then he got one thing wrong, which I thought was hilarious. I asked him about Kenny Ortega, who Kenny Ortega was the choreographer and lead dancer with the tubes. They had a choreographer and lead dancer. Hmm. 
Kenny went on, of course, to work with every act in soul, rock, R&B, and right, including... TV, yeah. Everything. Everyone. And directed a bunch of motion pictures and invented High School Musical and mm -hmm. is gigantic in show business. This guy goes to me. He's from San Mateo. So after the show, I'm standing outside. And who pulls up but my old buddy, Scott Crandall, who you've met. And another cat named Bill Rafferty, whose father was named... Or Darity, whose father was named Ray Darity, who uh, was the director of the high school summer stock that I did. And I go... This is a deep cut. I go to these guys. I got to ask you. They both went to school in Redwood City at Sequoia. I go, Kenny Ortega. And Scott Crandall goes, Sequoia, four years. Really? Before I'd asked the question, and I was like... You can always count on the Bay Area to, to be just, as provincial. Yeah, exactly. Which block? Uh, but yeah, what day? <laughs> Each? Because I was like, the guy inside who toured with them said San Mateo, and they both went, everybody knows no, Kenny Ortega. No, we have Ortega. to parse that. Yeah, Kenny Ortega went to Sequoia High School in Redwood City. Because I did summer stock in Redwood City, and we knew who Kenny Ortega was. And he was already a star when I was doing high school shows, right? He was already with the Tubes as a... And so I was well impressed, you know. Well, there you are. Where was that going? You know, a lot of people ask uh, where the show's going. And, and the answer is down to the lake, I fear. We'll be at the Moore Theater in Seattle. And that's why I said that, because San Jose was so good. And this was the story that I wondered if I told before. Um, I didn't remember the year until I went inside the San Jose Civic. Outside of the green room, which was lovely, by the way, and they, it, they couldn't have been more awesome, and up the staircase to the dressing rooms was a wall of fame that had the names of every act that had played there, which were largely white rock bands. There really wasn't a lot, like, you know, maybe Johnny Mathis. There wasn't a lot. It was largely white rock bands that had played there for the last hundred years. And, and Johnny Mathis, awesome, black, and gay from San Francisco. From San Francisco. Still alive. Oh, he was gigging in Marin where we were there. He was coming up next, and uh, we were very, very... We all started singing him, and we right. all... He, he can't I, I say stop. it to myself, it's I never, I never... And then I said, his reaction I just to, do Kevin Meany. His reaction to losing his house in the fire... Oh, it was unfortunate. Yeah, it was... He was on TV, and he was standing in front of the wreckage of his home. While the home's burning. Yeah, and he was like, well, you know, it's it's material things. So on the right, you can always replace them on the wall at the San Jose Civic is this wall of fame. And I looked down it and there it was the fucking concert that Donnie and I went to. And I can't remember the date. It was, you know, April something, 1978. And have I told this one before? Really? Wow. Okay. Never mind. How about it? No, let's hear it. So... We met up at my house. I, my parents must have not been there or something. I swear to you there are Polaroid pictures of me and Donnie of this night. Because we were printing in front of the mirror like nitwits. He was wearing a blue blazer and a white ruffled shirt with a long blue scarf. I was wearing um, this tan jacket that I had that had two pockets on one side. Do you follow what I'm saying? Two pockets on one side. The 70s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fully snuffle cut in there, wide there because of 78, whatever that year. Um, high-waisted, super tight, bell-bottom jeans, um, like boots or platform shoes, whatnot, um, tinted shades, and uh, sure. lots of hair. And on the way down to uh, San Jose Civic from San Carlos, which is a, you know, 35, 40, 
we um, were smoking weed and um, really, we got dr- my mother made me this scarf. This is so sad. My mother made me this scarf, but it was really bitching looking. It had a, like an illustrious sheen. So I was wearing that scarf. We wore, we actually said to each other that night, let's dress up. and go. Well, no, something you're quite familiar with. But for the idea of teenage hmm. boys to do that, teenage boys to dress up instead of just wearing a fucking t-shirt and fucking, come on, man, you know. I, I really loathe that people don't dress up to go to the airport. That's just me. But, but you and I, yeah, I know. I've had people say to me, do you own jeans? It's like, of course I do. I'm just not going to let you have the satisfaction. So we uh, <laughs> we dressed up and we did our hair and shit. You know, we had high hair and whatnot. And um, mine, of course, in that Ian Hunter thing that I was really, really striving for when you first met me, that like big lots of hair. And Donnie in this sort of unbelievable parsimonious, you know, Felton from The Three Musketeers who was the Puritan in the movie, whatever. It was sort of parted down the middle of the fair. I don't know how to... So we drove down. And on the way, Donnie says, let's be English. And I'm like, on it. So, of course, in those days, it was probably, dude. And then we went, yeah, dude, um, we're doing it. So when we got there, we did shitty English accents. That was kind of a disease then. And everyone in line bought it and talked to us. We We... Held court. Are you sure? We held court. Wow. Thanks for pulling the rug out. <laughs> now I run away with nothing left to hide. Really? Don't you remember people that were trying to... Pre- that Yes, of course. That, that were pretending to be English while living in... There was a girl who worked with me at Red Peppers who I won't say either of her fake name or her real name, but when I knew her as the one persona, she was English. And then later when I saw her, she was the regular girl that I knew from Santa Rosa. (laughs) But when we worked (laughs) at the store together, she talked like this. And it was like, you're not, but you don't have to do this. You're not English. It was actually a plague. We were only doing it for one night. So it was fun. And I think a lot of the, yeah, Motorhead guys in line to see ACDC. So ACDC came out and they had Bon Scott in the band then. And he was super creepy and he wore no shirt, jeans, and tennis shoes. That was his only outfit. And Angus had the schoolboy outfit with the book bag and the hat. And then the book boy and the hat went away. Or the book boys and the book boys (laughs) and the book book boys. boys. (laughs) Give me the book boys! And they played a lot of really good songs, right? They did Let There Be Rock and a whole lot of Rosie and all that jazz, all the early stuff. And as I told you, another terrible song that shall be discussed. And then they appeared in the audience because they had a sneaky cordless guitar. And Bond carried Angus with his thighs. So you could be taken by surprise. Yeah, and he came running out on the floor. And and But there was the first um, cordless you know, uh, wireless, blue, Bluetooth, whatever. They This was the <laughs> 70s. You know, they were able to actually not have a cord, and that was, to us, wildly exciting at the time. And and then, and I, I know I did tell the story before because Ronnie Montrose passed some time ago yes. during the Obama administration. Yes. Okay, all right. Anyways. Well, that story was told, so that it, is it the bass player who became a paranoid drum. meth addict? The drummer. I thought the drummer was... I thought the drummer the was brother. the one who uh, almost got convicted of murder, was it? Yes. Yeah. 
Fantastic. ACDC was so good when we saw them. Then we're going to be uh, on March 12th in Escondido, which is basically a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful area outside of San Diego. Or as we called it in the 80s when I used to play Pacific Beach at the Improv, San Degraded. Um, March 13th will be at Lancaster, California, where, by the way, I grew up, Jennifer, and I went to kindergarten and part of first grade in Lancaster, and we used to play outside, and there would be sonic booms because um, but test you, aircraft. You moved to San Carlos when you were how old? Don't ever, ever question me or, or the veracity of anything I'm saying. I lived in Lancaster in the Kennedy administration. Okay. No, a little after. Uh, then we'll be, we'll be in Arroyo Grande, uh, which is Pismo Beach, March 14th, Saturday, at the Clark Center for What about the Arts. Pismo Beach disaster? Um, a lot of people might have lost their sporting goods as well. Cher, what are you doing? What, what, what are you doing with those skis? Daddy, they might have lost their sporting goods. Uh, then we'll be at uh, Santa Barbara at the uh, Lobrera, which is new for us. Well, we're moving, I think. Um, that's March 15th, Sunday, Santa Barbara. We look forward to that one so much. Then... The Midwest and the Southeast, St. Louis on March 27th, Kansas City on March 28th, and then down to Georgia IA on the 31st, the first at Spartanburg, the second in Raleigh, and the third in Charlotte. And then, uh, then we move on to April and jazz like that. But I have other dates, and I'm going to keep telling you about them. We're doing a live podcast uh, from uh, the Dynasty typewriter right here in Hollywood, that's on the 2nd of March, and then I'm at the Greenwich Odium in Rhode Island with Joy L. Johnson on the 20th of March, and then Jennifer and I will be at the Bell House in Brooklyn on the 22nd of March with a, a Proop cast there. You can go to gregproops.com and uh, make that all happen. It's sort of like, you know, making, dare I say it? Yes. Yeah. Um, the hermit we, crab's dreams come true. Are we going to talk about Tony Smith? Tony Smith, who sings on the song Funkin' for Jamaica, passed away last month. Uh, she was asked by Tom Brown, who plays the trumpet and is currently on tour, by the way. Is he really? Oh, yes, he is. Tom Brown's an ordinary guy, as they say in the song. <laughs> And they made this incredible song when she was a teenager. Oh, really? Yeah. You can watch on YouTube and she's wearing an arm sheath. Yeah, it's called Funkin' for Jamaica, parentheses, Brackets. Queens. It's one of the great, 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 great. It was a tribute to his neighborhood, which produced a lot of jazz musicians, mm. including Marcus Miller. Marcus Miller? And my favorite... Uh, fact about this song is that Chaka Khan thought she had forgotten she did this song when she first heard it. That's so funny. And someone had to tell her, oh Chaka, it's not you. Oh my god. A lot of people think it's Chaka Khan <laughs> on this song because of <laughs> right? her Miss but she, she did too. Her vo Oh my god. Her <laughs> vocals are so great that uh, yeah, oh my god, Chaka Khan thought it too. It is just... <laughs> She's swirling in the heavens, bringing joy to everyone. What an incredible song.
In the movie Glitter with Mariah Carey, she sings this. I'm not kidding. May every page you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that rings for you be a cool pub a bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very bonds. On behalf of Jennifer and myself, we'll see you around. You dig Tom Brown? He's an ordinary guy.